Happy Resurrection Day to everyone. As I was mentioning to some of you as you were coming in, every Sunday is special and there's a joy in our church, but I feel like there's an extra special joy on Sunday morning. There's not a lot of true panaceas in the world. A panacea is something that cures everything. But the resurrection of Christ is the perhaps one true panacea. Whatever problem we have, it looks pretty small in comparison to the awesome truth of Christ's resurrection. So I'm looking forward to this morning. But this first Sunday school hour, I don't have a Resurrection Sunday message prepared for you. We're going to save all of that for the main service. But instead, we're going to continue going through our Old Testament survey. So you can open up your Bibles once again to the book of Deuteronomy. We're not going to move past Deuteronomy yet. We're going to spend a little bit more time here in the Torah. And I really have enjoyed reading and studying and teaching the Pentateuch once again. And of course, as we said, getting to Deuteronomy is kind of the whole point of the rest of the Torah. So it's good for us to slow down a little bit and take our time to examine Deuteronomy for a second week and not rush into the book of Joshua. Also, this gives you more time to catch up with your reading. I know it's been a busy week for me and my family. I assume this time of year is also busy for you with family and extra events on the calendar related to Resurrection Sunday. So I thought it'd be good to give myself and give you also more time before we move on in our Old Testament survey. So Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44, is where I would like to direct your attention first this morning. And you'll notice on the handout that I gave you that we're going to be talking about how to use the law today. The law is really what we call the Pentateuch, the Torah. Torah means law. Law in the sense of commandments and instruction. And it's a law that was given for a nation, the people of Israel. And so it's a national law. It has national holidays. It has all kinds of things concerning the justice system and how they were supposed to function in their courts. And so it's not just like what we have in the law of Christ, which is for a church, a people that are not a nation but live among all the nations, but it's a law for a specific nation. And so it's a different time and a different place, and it's a different covenant that we exist in our relationship with God through the new covenant. But the Israelites, their relationship with God was mediated through what is now called the old covenant. But originally it wasn't called the old covenant. When Moses gave it, it was new. And that's why we call it the Sinaitic covenant or the Mosaic covenant. That it's the covenant that God made with Israel at Mount Sinai, at Mount Horeb. And it is about the law. That's why we call it the Torah. And here in Deuteronomy 4 verse 44 you see, this is the law that Moses set before the people of Israel. And the ESV has a great section title for this paragraph at the end of chapter 4, Introduction to the Law. Now, I've told you and repeatedly emphasized how important the Torah is for understanding the whole Bible. And so today we're going to dive a little bit deeper into what we began last week, talking about how we relate to the law and how the Old Testament law relates to us. How does the commandments and the instructions, the testimonies, as it says there, the rules in verse 45, which Moses spoke to the people of Israel all those 3,500 years ago, how does that relate to us 
in our relationship to God today. As we've been pointing out over and over again in our Old Testament survey, Romans 15.4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So while the Old Testament law wasn't written to us, it was written to the Israelites living in that time and place, the New Testament makes it clear that that doesn't mean that it's irrelevant. That doesn't mean that we don't spend any time reading and studying and learning from it, but that it was written for us. And so not to us, but for us, and it is a great benefit to us. And in fact, perhaps it's the largest detriment to the church, the evangelical church in America and in the world today, that we spend so little time reading and understanding God's revelation of himself and his righteousness through the law, so that there's a lot of misunderstanding about God, there's little knowledge of God, because of this neglect of Torah. So, that's the review for where we've been and where we are, setting up our lesson today, how to use the law today, focusing on Deuteronomy 12 through 26, the heart of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, as the law is introduced here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 44, then, of course, what follows in chapter 5, if you turn the page, or maybe it's on the same page for you, is the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments are given for a second time here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. What was the first time that the Ten Commandments were given to us in the Torah? Where, which chapter? Which book? Exodus 20. Yeah. So Exodus 20 is when God first gives the Ten Commandments, but they are reiterated, they are restated here in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And God repeats things for emphasis. The Ten Commandments are worth repeating. A lot of awesome instruction here about God and his requirements. Now, when it comes to understanding how to use the law, we want to look at the way that it is used in the New Testament. The New Testament is our pattern, it's our example. And so if we go to the writings of the apostles and prophets who are the foundation of the church, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and we see how they use the Old Testament law, well then that will give us a divine guideline on how to use the law today. We want to follow in the footsteps of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ because they were taught by Christ on how to use the law. And also the Holy Spirit led them into all the truth and inspired their writings so that we can have an authoritative, perfect guide on how to use the law as New Testament Christians. Isn't that neat? That we don't have to just try to figure it out. We don't have to just make it up or, or listen to whoever we want to listen to. But we've got the inspired writings of the apostles in order to show us how to use the New Testament today. Now, when we're talking about the New Testament, there's two parts of the New Testament. There's the Gospels, and then there's the Epistles. And of course, Acts is like the go-between, between the Gospels and the Epistles. And what you want to remember about the Gospels is that during that time, when we see how Jesus uses the law, remember that Jesus is still under the law. The law does not get changed the covenant doesn't change from the old covenant to the new covenant until the death and resurrection of Christ and really, you could say, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit is poured out. That's kind of the beginning of the new covenant blessings. The Spirit being poured out into our hearts was one of the key elements of the new covenant that was promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34, promised this law of God written on our hearts and that God would pour out His Spirit upon us. And so, 
really, it doesn't begin until Pentecost and the formation of the church relating to God through the New Covenant. So when you're reading the Gospels, don't just look at those as, oh, that's how we're supposed to use the law today, because that was actually the previous covenant era. As dispensationalists would say, that's the previous dispensation when Israel was underneath the law. So when we're looking at Christ, it's more like looking at the Old Testament believers and how they lived under the law because Christ was still living under the law. Uh, You could write down if it's not on your handout. Let's see, I got a handout here. No, it's not on your handout. Galatians 4.4. Write down Galatians 4.4 because there it tells us that Jesus was born under the law. I'm not going to take time to look at every verse I reference today because there's just too many. But Jesus Christ was born under the law. But now those former things have passed away and the new covenant has come, so we're no longer under the law. Now that doesn't mean that we completely disregard Jesus' use of the law in the Gospels, for many of the principles of how Jesus used the law are still how we use the law today. So there's distinction, but there's also similarities. And so go to Matthew chapter 4, like it's there on your outline. Come into the New Testament to see how the New Testament uses the law, and in particular, the book of Deuteronomy. What happens in Matthew chapter 4? Those of you that are familiar with the Gospels, we're early here in Jesus' ministry. At the beginning of the chapter is the temptation of Jesus. And when Jesus is tempted by the devil in the wilderness... Three times he responds with quoting scripture. And if you take a look at it there in verse 4, Jesus answered, It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And if you look at your, if you have a side column reference, what Bible verse is Jesus quoting here when he says, It is written, well, go to verse 4 and you look at the first reference there and it tells you this is from Deuteronomy 8.3. So he's quoting from the law, he's quoting from Torah, in particular, the book of Deuteronomy. Now you look at the second one. Jesus is tempted by the devil and he says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down. And now the devil is quoting scripture, this time from the Psalms. And then Jesus responds in verse 7, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now where does that come from? Verse 7, you look down at your cross-references, cited from Deuteronomy 6, verse 16. So a second time, he's quoted from the early chapters in Deuteronomy. And then you look at the third temptation, and Jesus responds to Satan in verse 10, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And you go down and look at verse 10, and this, see, this is from 1 Chronicles 21.1. But I think 1 Chronicles 21.1 is also referring back to the Torah. So three times Jesus quotes from the Old Testament scriptures. He's quoting from Deuteronomy. He's quoting from the Torah in order to resist temptation, in order to be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And this hasn't changed. You can still use the law to resist temptation. You can still use the law of the Old Testament to understand God's will and to be able to know right from wrong so that Satan doesn't lead you into sin. So this is a proper use of the Old Testament that is still applicable to us today, even though it was in the previous dispensation when Jesus was still living under the Old Testament law. He still sets us a good example on how to use the law, and we'll see that as we continue through the rest of the New Testament, looking at how the apostles used the Old Testament law. Okay? So, then we get into the epistles. 
The epistles are not the wives of the apostles. They are the letters that were written by the apostles. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. And so let's look into the letters of the New Testament because these were written to the church. The Gospels were written to the church too, but they are a historical record, and a historical record is interpreted and applied differently than direct commands. In the epistles, we have direct commands, instruction tailored to the church. And so when we see the apostles using the Old Testament law in their letters, then that shows us how we are supposed to use it today most clearly. Not that we don't have good examples in the Gospels and the Old Testament, but here in the epistles is where it's most direct and relative to us. So come with me as it says there on your handout to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12. Some people think the letter to the Hebrews was written by the Apostle Paul. I don't read it that way. There's a few things that the writer to the Hebrews says that I just don't think Paul would have said that way. And the Greek of the letter to the Hebrews, I think, is sufficiently different from Paul's style that we can be confident that Paul did not write the letter to the Hebrews. My particular favorite theory is that Apollos wrote the letter to the Hebrews because he was an Alexandrian Jew who was learned, and that fits the style of Greek here very well. And also it's clear that he was not himself an eyewitness, but he refers to others as eyewitnesses. And it's also clear that he was a part of the circle of Paul because he was writing about Timothy and what was happening with Timothy. And so Apollos just fits the bill really well, and I tend to think that he's the author, although there's a lot of good reasons that people could give why he's not the author as well. The point is, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29, and let me just read a larger section here to be able to get the flavor of how we're supposed to use the law, the Old Testament law, in order to learn about God and his character. So the first way that we're supposed to use the law, I'm pointing out for you, probably the most important thing that we're supposed to use the law for, is to learn about God and his character. And hopefully that's what you've been doing as you've been reading through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and you've seen all that God did, and you've heard all that God said. That is supposed to give you knowledge about God and about his character. Let's see how the writer of Hebrews knows about God in light of the law. He writes this, for you have not come to what may be touched. Oh, what's he referring to? He's referring to the blazing fire, the darkness and the gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. And you can read about that in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. So he's going back to God's revelation of himself at Mount Sinai with the fire, the smoke, the earthquake, the trumpet, the loud voice, and the people saying, don't let God speak to us anymore or else we might die. So he's talking about that and he's contrasting it with us. You have not come to that physical mountain that he refers to in verses 18 and 19, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There's a key phrase for us. Not the old covenant, the new covenant. Not Mount Sinai, but Mount Zion. 
And this is different time, different place, different dispensation, different way that we relate to God than they did in the Old Testament, but still the same God. Okay? God doesn't change, just the covenant that God has made with us has changed. So he says in verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less, okay? Well, I thought this was a time of grace. I thought, you know, back then God would really punish the people severely for not listening to him. But now we're in the new covenant and anything goes. And God is just hunky-dory with no matter what the church does. No, that's misunderstanding grace. That's abusing grace for license. And the Bible says that false teachers turn the grace of God into licentiousness. Well, God is gracious, and so we can ordain homosexual pastors. And this is an age of grace, and that Old Testament law, and all those things that God said don't apply anymore. And we can have divorce left and right in our churches because this is a day of grace. And God just forgives it, and the blood covers all. They turn the grace of God into licentiousness. And that's not the right way to understand the new covenant. And it's not the right way to understand the old covenant. He says, notice again in verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. You need to obey God. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less. See, now this greater revelation, this new covenant, which is even better, makes us even more accountable to God. Much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship. That's our goal. We're here to try to offer to God acceptable worship. Not acceptable in the sight of man, acceptable in the sight of the holy God. And notice what he says after that. This is to be done with reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. The age of grace does not mean that we come to God willy-nilly. doesn't mean that we come to God flippantly. doesn't mean that we enter into God's presence unholy and disobedient and think that there's no consequences for that. We offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. And he learned this reverence and awe from the Torah, the law. You gather sticks on the Sabbath, you are stoned to death by the people. God is severe in his judgments. God is amazing in his mercy. But don't mistake the amazing grace of God for weakness or an inability or an unwillingness to punish the guilty. We serve God with reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. Our God is a consuming fire. God does not change. God is holy. God is jealous. God is righteous. God is merciful. All of those things are true. Nothing has changed. The covenant has changed, but God's character is the same. And so you use the Old Testament law to learn about God and to learn about his character. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as the writer of Hebrews says. So when you look at the first three commandments, you figure out that God and the worship of God and the glory of God is the most important thing to God. So often we as Christians think about, well, what's the most important thing to us? What's the most important thing to the church? What's the most important thing to humanity? And we get conformed to our culture. Our minds get conformed to the age that we live in, and we become humanitarians, instead of becoming Christians. 
There's a difference between being a humanitarian and being a Christian. Do you know what the difference is? A humanitarian's highest value is what is good for humanity. A Christian's highest value is what brings glory and honor to God. There's a difference. Your highest value is the most important thing about you. And if your highest value is the good of humanity, you've got a problem. And it's going to filter in and affect how you think about everything and how you do everything. You've got to go back and read the law to be able to understand God's glory is more important than the welfare of humanity. All right, so you use the law to learn about God and his character, and the first three commandments show us that God is a jealous God, that God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth, and that God is a consuming fire. Come back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 again. We'll be going back and forth from Deuteronomy to the New Testament, so you might want to keep a marker there in Deuteronomy, and we'll be all over the New Testament. And Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 12 What does Deuteronomy 4.12 say? Then the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice. So why did God speak out of the fire? Because God is a consuming fire, as it says. It, It portrays the jealousy of God, the wrath of God, the vengeance of God. That's why we talk about the lake of fire is the place of eternal punishment. So the fire of God there is where the writer of Hebrews is getting this idea that God is a consuming fire and that God is spirit. There in chapter 4, verse 12, you didn't see a form. There was only a voice. There's got to be a separation between the creation and the creator. And if you don't have a separation between the creation and the creator, then you are a pagan. The pagans were the ones who didn't see much separation. And they also were polytheists. And polytheism goes hand in hand with not having a distinction between the creator and the creation. Now, think about polytheism. There were many gods, just like there are many demons. And the demons would have control over certain aspects of creation. You can read about it in the scriptures about how there's the angel who has power over fire, which is a fascinating insight into the angelic world. And so there's these principalities and powers, and they wanted to be worshipped instead of God. That was Satan's whole stick, right? I'm going to lift myself up above the throne of God and I'm going to be worshipped. And so the demons love to direct worship away from God and to themselves. And so that's polytheism. Many demons with different powers directing worship towards themselves. But demons are created things. Angels are created things. And so when you worship a created thing, no matter how powerful and glorious that created thing is, instead of God, well, you've erased the distinction between the creator and the creation. That God alone is worthy of the worship, and created things are not worthy of the worship that is due to God and God alone. So you learn about that in the Ten Commandments. That God is spirit, he's a jealous God, you have to worship him alone, not worship the creation. And when you worship the creation rather than the creator, which is what our society has become, we've got environmentalists, we've got humanists, we've got all kinds of people who are worshiping the creation instead of the creator, well then what follows is, is all kinds of wickedness. And then you start to break all the other laws. And husbands don't love their wives. And spouses aren't faithful to each other. And people steal what is not theirs. And they lie. And they break all the commandments. But it all goes back to worshiping the creation rather than the creator. That's the heart problem. That's why the Ten Commandments start with the worship of God. They don't start with do not murder. 
They start with worship God and worship God alone because everything flows out of that. God is very wise. And we need to learn about God from the law, from the Torah. Now, come with me then to Romans chapter 12, verse 19. Romans chapter 12, verse 19. The New Testament is filled with quotations from the Old Testament. And even when it's not directly quoting the Old Testament, it's just infused with the ideas, the thoughts of the Old Testament. Now, it's great then to just read the New Testament because then you're going to get a lot of Old Testament just by reading the New Testament because it's just all in there everywhere. But in order to get the most out of the New Testament, you've got to go back and understand your Old Testament. So Romans 12, verse 19, it says this. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. So then, once again, you look to your side column for verse 19, and you see that chapter 12, verse 19, is cited from Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 35. All right? So Deuteronomy, once again, being quoted. It's the most quoted book in the New Testament, Deuteronomy shows you how important it is to understand the law and how to use the law because the New Testament uses the law more than anything else, even just one part of the law because the law is really the first five parts there, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But just the last part, Deuteronomy, is quoted more than anything else, even the book of Psalms, which has 150 Psalms and it's the largest book as we divide up the books. Deuteronomy is quoted more than the book of Psalms. So you've got to know how to use the law. And you should be using the law. They use the law. We should use the law. So how did they use it? Romans 12, 19, to learn about God and his character. What do we learn about God and his character is that vengeance belongs to God and that God is the one who repays sinners. That we are not those who repay sinners, but that God is the one who repays sinners. Now, one thing to keep in mind here is that God has instituted human government and that human government's role is to serve as a minister of God to punish the criminal, to punish the wrongdoer. And so one of the ways in which God's vengeance is manifest in the world today is through human government. That is God punishing. See, God doesn't have to do everything directly in order for God to be the one doing it. That's how most atheists think about it. They think, well, whatever human beings do, that's what human beings are doing. And if God's going to do anything, he has to do it directly. That's not true. God does a lot of things through instruments, through means. And he brings vengeance upon the wicked through the instrument, through the means of human government. And that's something we can be thankful for that God does. Otherwise, there would be chaos and violence and gangs that went totally out of control in the world the way the world was before the flood before God instituted human government, it's kind of like a Mad Max type of world. No government, no justice system, just gangs and violence everywhere. So, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That's from Deuteronomy. And that's what Paul quotes from in order to exhort Christians to proper behavior based upon the character of God. And that's our first point. Use the law to learn about God and his character. But then it also ties into our second point. Use the law to learn and apply principles of right living. Because we know who God is, therefore we know what's right and wrong and how to live. God is the standard. He is righteousness. And so you learn about God, you're learning about his righteousness, and then that's going to teach you how to do right, to live right. So you use the law then, not only to learn about God and his character, but then the next step to learn and apply principles of right living, which are the last seven commandments, right? So... Commandments 
4 through 10 have to do with our life lived out for God. Laws of holiness are the first things I want to talk about there. You've got that on your handout. How do you use the law? Use it to learn about God, number one, and then you use it to learn and apply principles of righteousness. And the first thing, law is about holiness. So let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. You can be writing these verses down on your outline. 1 Corinthians 5.13 goes with laws of holiness. Here, Paul is writing about sexual immorality in the church. And the Corinthians have fallen prey to this false teaching that, well, since we are in Christ and we're under grace and not under law, therefore it's okay if there's sexual immorality in our church because grace. Then Paul comes in and says, no, no, no. That's not what grace means. And he comes and tells them, in verse, what was I saying, verse 13, God judges those outside. You purge the evil person from among you. So you don't have to go around into the world and say, hey, you're living in sin and my job to punish you for living in sin. No. If they're breaking the law, it's the government's job to punish them for breaking the law. But it's not our job to be the righteousness police for the world. That's the government's job. You've got to have a separation here between God's intention for the government and God's intention for the church. What is the church's job is to police righteousness in the church because we're a family. We're the family of God. And so it's our job to purge the evil person from among you. Now, notice that's a quotation. So once again, you use your, your reference Bible to find out, well, where is this quotation coming from? You go down to verse 13 in the side column, or down at the bottom of the page, and you see Deuteronomy 13.5, Deuteronomy 17.7, Deuteronomy 17.12, Deuteronomy 21, verses 21 and, 22, and chapter 22, verses 21, 22, and 24, and Judges chapter 20, verse 13. So there's a lot of verses in the Old Testament that are saying basically the same thing that Paul is quoting and summarizing the quotations from the Old Testament, saying, just like Israel had the responsibility to purge the evil person from among them, so the church has the responsibility of purging the evil person from among us. This is called church discipline. It's also called shunning by some people that don't like the idea of church discipline. And they think, well, it's just such a terrible thing that Christians would shame other Christians and, and kick them out of the church. Don't they understand anything about grace? Once again, you see that grace does not mean that there's no consequences for sin and that we're not supposed to be a holy people. Now, how are we supposed to maintain holiness if we allow unholy people to be a part of what we're doing. You can't. And God has his design, his goal, to have a holy people. Christ has died in order to create a holy family. And if we refuse to listen to him who is warning us from heaven to purge the evil person from among you because we fear man and we don't want to look like big meanies and we're conforming to our culture, and we're just caring so much about this individual that we're willing to, to tolerate their sin so that we can maintain fellowship with them, well, we have sacrificed God's truth, God's word, God's holiness for humanism. Humanism. We're considering human values more important than God's glory and God's desire and God's values. When you set your mind on the things of man 
instead of setting your mind on the things of God, then you will no longer exercise church discipline. You can tell a true church by whether or not they set their minds on the things of God. And you can tell whether or not they're setting their mind on the things of God as to whether or not they practice church discipline. I'm not the first one to come up with that. Theologians for centuries have been pointing out that once a church stops church discipline, they have started on the road to no longer being a church. And you can read about this in the book of Revelation, that if you tolerate false teaching, if you tolerate sinful lifestyles, God is going to take your lampstand away. You won't be a church anymore. You might still exist as an organization, but you're not a church in God's sight. Um, So, purge the evil person from among you is a proper use of the Old Testament law exemplified by the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 13. So I think it's really good that we take this extra week in Deuteronomy to come to the New Testament and see how do they use the Old Testament law so that we can learn to do the same. Learning by example is one of the best ways of learning. All right, so we left off with 1 Corinthians 5, 13. And then another verse I want you to look at here is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. Still in Paul's letters. And as Paul writes to the Thessalonians, now in chapter 4, he's talking about living a life pleasing to God at the beginning of the chapter. But then he switches over to talk about the coming of the Lord in the second half of the chapter. And he starts off the discussion about Christ's coming for the church, we call the rapture, with this. He says, We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Now, notice there's no quotation here. So I'm not showing you an example of Paul quoting from the Old Testament. Instead, I'm going to use what we've already established that one of the principles we're supposed to understand is that we look to the law to learn to apply principles of right living. And here, the commandment of the Holy Spirit is to not grieve for those who die in our family and in our circles of friendship the same way that people do who do not have the hope that Christ gives. The hope of the resurrection, the hope of eternal life, the hope of the kingdom of God, the hope of reunion, that this changes the way that we view death. What a great message for Resurrection Sunday, right? And so we can mourn, but we don't mourn the same way, not in a hopeless way. Now, let's go back to the law and learn some principles for how to apply this commandment in the New Testament. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Deuteronomy 14, verses 1 and 2. Deuteronomy 14, 1 and 2 says this. Quotation from God. Moses is writing down God's direct commandments to the people of Israel. You are the sons of the Lord your God. That's still a true principle. We're still the children of God today. You see similarities between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but there's also differences. Similarities does not mean they're the same thing. It just means they're related to one another. Clarissa and I have similarities, but we're not the same. We're just related to one another. That's the way the Old Covenant and the New Covenant are. He says this, You are the sons of the Lord your God. You shall not cut yourselves or make any baldness on your foreheads for the dead. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, in order to understand this commandment, it helps to have some context, some historical understanding of the culture into which God created. The culture out of which, I should say, that God created the nation of Israel. That the culture of the Middle East, the ancient Near East at that time, related to death, was that when a loved one died, people would express their mourning by cutting themselves and shaving their head, making baldness on their foreheads for the dead. And so you would know people were in mourning because they'd have these wounds that were on them because they were mourning for their, their dead relative or their dead friend. And you could also see it, they'd cut their hair, which was a, a mark of shame, a mark of disgrace in the ancient world. And then, so God says, I don't want you doing that. That you have a different relationship to death than the people who are around you. You are a holy people. And so he doesn't say you can't mourn. He just says you don't mourn the way the nations do. And so I look around and look at the culture of death that we live in. And we don't want to participate. We don't be conformed to the, the culture of death around us. And I'll leave it to your sanctified imagination to, to think through, well, what are some of the ways that people mourn wrongly in our time and place that we as Christians should not be doing? Well, I'd say cutting yourself is still one of those on the top of the list. Uh, there's uh, young people who are emotionally troubled. They're, they're called emo. Emo stands for emotionally troubled. And one of the things that emo young people will do is they will cut themselves. And this is a, a strange psychological phenomena of the lost soul. And we should not be like that. And even if something terrible happens and a loved one dies, we don't resort to this kind of emotionally troubled behavior of cutting ourselves. But it applies to other things as well. But just one example here from the law about things that are still principles in the New Testament, making a connection there between Deuteronomy 14 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So then let's take a look at the laws of love. So we've learned some just briefly, about laws of holiness. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves and don't mourn like those who have no hope. Let's look at some of the laws of love and see their relationship between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. So come with me to the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 18. 1 Timothy 5, 18. So here, Paul writing to his son in the faith, a younger man who has been assisting Paul in his missionary journeys, and now Timothy is at Ephesus on mission for the Apostle Paul, setting some things in order and bringing messages and pastoring the church there at Ephesus on Paul's behalf. And Paul writes to Timothy and through Timothy to the whole church, and he's talking here in verse 17 about payment for those who are laboring as elders in the church. He says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. Double honor is a Greek phrase referring to payment, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. That if there's anything that is worth supporting in the world, it's the preaching and the teaching of God's word. That's probably first, and then second would be farmers as you don't last very long without food. And so we should pay farmers for growing our food. But I'd say even more important than having food on your table is having the Word of God. And so God says, I want there to be people 
who devote their full time to studying and teaching God's Word, and you, as God's family, who know the worth of God's Word, should pay that person so that he can devote himself full time to that. If you despise God's Word and you think, well, it's not that important, we can just have some guy you know, come up and talk, he doesn't need to be studying all week, whatever God gives him in the moment is fine. Well, that's not valuing God's Word the way that he wants us to. And so we see that the principle here, the commandment of God laid down for the church, to have people who are devoted to the labor of preaching and teaching. This is not a later church tradition. Uh, somewhere along the line, the Protestants decided, well, we want to have preachers and teachers, and so we're going to pay preachers and teachers. No, this is God's word from the beginning. And notice verse 18 then. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And the laborer deserves his wages. Interesting. So in supporting the doctrine of paying the elders who labor in preaching and teaching, he says the scripture supports this. And what scripture is it? Well, it's one about ox, <laughs> oxen. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. And, and where is that found? Well, once again, you, you look at your handy notes in your Bible and you see this is cited from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. Once again, Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is everywhere in the New Testament. You should be reading Deuteronomy. And hopefully you'll be able to apply and understand Deuteronomy better as a result of this introduction to the Torah and this particular lesson on how to use the law. So, God lays out a principle for farmers that when the farmer is using his oxen for threshing, what's threshing? Some of you may not know. I didn't grow up on a farm, so I had to learn this from a preacher or from a book. Threshing is when you take the grain that you cut from your fields and you separate the grain from the chaff. And those of you who live next to a field, you know about all the chaff, all the, the corn chaff that gets blown from the field when the winds pick up here. And so when they harvested, they didn't have all the machinery that we do, and so they had to thresh their wheat. And the way they did it was they'd take a heavy stone, a millstone, a grinding stone, and they would use an oxen to turn that stone and crush the grain and the chaff so that then the chaff could be separated from the grain, and then you would take that crushed grain and wheat, and you'd throw it up in the air with a pitchfork, and the, the wind would blow away the chaff, and the grain, which is heavier, would just fall down to the ground. And so the oxen were important to be able to move this heavy stone that was used for the threshing. You couldn't do it without a strong animal. And so the animal is putting work into your food. And so the principle here is, is that the elder who preaches and teaches God's word, the elders, there should be plural of us, not just one, who are preaching and teaching God's word, they're working, they're putting effort into this, they're laboring for it. And whenever somebody labors, they should be able to participate in the benefit of their labor. They should be paid for their work. Now, oxen don't use money, but oxen eat. And so if you are a greedy farmer, you're like, hey, oxen, I'm going to put a muzzle on you while you're threshing so that you don't stop and eat, but instead you can just focus on work. And the Bible says that's not how you should think about your laborers, whether they're human laborers or whether they're animal laborers. And if an animal is worthy of consideration under God's law, how much more people? And so you shouldn't, if you have employees at work, you shouldn't be like, when you're here at work, there's no breaks, and you don't get to eat anything, and, and you just work at work, and, and you can do all your eating at home. 
That's not the attitude. But if you have a restaurant and you've got workers who are laboring there, well, then your, your workers at the restaurant should be able to enjoy the soda or the milkshake or whatever uh, that is there while they're working. Now, you can't sit down and just feast while they're working. They've got to still be working. But there's this principle that when you're working, you get to enjoy what you're working on. You get paid for it. And part of that pay is the ox eats the grain while he's threshing it. You don't muzzle him. And now God shows us by the Holy Spirit that that principle, even though I'm not a farmer and I don't have any oxen and I don't do any threshing, is still important to learn about principles of love. Now, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. 1 Timothy 5.18 from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. But notice also verse 19. Look at the next verse in 1 Timothy. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The importance of two or three witnesses goes back to the Old Testament law. That it was in the Old Testament law, and this gets into our next section here, laws of justice, laws of righteousness. In a law court, when it comes to matters of justice, you can't just have one witness to condemn somebody. You've got to have multiple witnesses. This is a part of the law in Exodus and Deuteronomy. And so you see that those law principles, those justice principles, are not only true for the nation of Israel and its law courts, but it's also true for the family of God. And so that if we're investigating a matter, and somebody says, well, I saw elder so-and-so do this, or whatever, we've got to have enough evidence to convict, and two or three witnesses are what is necessary if eyewitness testimony is all we have. So important to see the, even the justice principles carrying over here in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Come with me also to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Now the great thing about verse by verse, chapter by chapter study is that you really get to know books of the Bible and you really get to understand verses in their context. But what's really great about a study like this, and that's why you need a balance in your, your diet of God's Word, it can't all be verse by verse, and it can't all be topical. But the nice thing about a topical study is that you see things that you would miss if you were just doing it verse by verse. If I was just teaching 1 Corinthians verse by verse, yeah, every now and then I'd come across a verse that was a quotation from the Old Testament, and I might remember to say something about how to use the Old Testament. But when you put all of it together, then it really starts to sink in, and you really start to understand, oh... That's how you use the Old Testament. So there's a benefit of doing this kind of study. All right, so 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 7 through 10. You follow along in your Bibles. It says this, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without aiding any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? So he uses logic. He uses just, well, this is just the way life is. But then he backs that up with the law says the same thing. And once again, for it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not seek, speak certainly for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing the crop. And he goes on and, and applies that principle just like he did in First Timothy. So you have multiple instances of this. We've got just five minutes left, and I might spend another week on this subject of how to use the law, because it is very important study. 
And let's, I want to give more examples because there's so much good stuff in the law that you've been reading that does apply to justice and love and God's holiness and all of that. And I, I just want to spend some time together on that. So come back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. Now, once again, we are not under the law of Moses. So if you misapply or you're not paying attention to one of these principles in these verses, I'm not going to come over and put you under church discipline or anything like that. But I might come and exhort you and say, well, have you read this? How do you think this applies to your situation? And what do we learn about God from Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25? And how might you better implement that as the freedom that you have in Christ to serve God from the heart? As you learn about God from the law, you're not under the law and you're not going to be punished for not doing these things, some of these things, but there's a lot here that you want to be challenged by and say, okay, well, maybe I want to learn better how to run my business or maybe I want to learn better how to be charitable or maybe I want some ideas about how to try to set a good example for others around me by taking some of the wisdom that's in God's law and putting it into practice in my life. So Deuteronomy 23, verses 24 and 25. If you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you may eat your fill of grapes, as many as you wish, but you shall not put any in your bag. If you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So, this is an interesting law. If uh, you're a farmer, then you can understand uh, this better. Now, I'm a gardener. Last year we grew tomatoes and cucumbers and a few other things. And we had some blackberries and blueberries. And if my kids had friends come over and they pluck off some raspberries while they're out in the backyard playing and eat those, I don't go out there and yell at them. Say, hey, those are my raspberries. You don't get any of those. I put the work in. I grew them. No. Instead, there's just this understanding that it's God's world and that if there's raspberries on my raspberry bush and, and you're passing along, you can have some. This is a spirit of generosity, a spirit of honoring God and loving others that you see in just a very small thing, or a small detail. You know, I don't go out and yell at the kids for walking on my grass because, you know, it's, it's God's grass and I want God's people that he's created on the earth to be able to enjoy God's world and so it's, it's laws like this that I think just have a, a multitude of applications that if we just let it sink into our hearts and think about, well, why did God take the time to say that? Now, God has a lot of things he could talk about. Why does he take the time to say, if you go into your neighbor's vineyard, you can eat your fill of grapes? Seems like there's more important things for God to be talking about than that. But actually, this is very important. It's very important what our attitude is towards God's world and the things that we own and our love for our neighbor. This is one practical example of that. Now, again, you're not under the law. If you put out a sign that says, stay off the grass, I'm not going to come over and rebuke you. But I might say, well, have you ever thought about Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 24 and 25, and that it's God's grass, and maybe you should just let people enjoy it? So that's a proper way, I think, of using the Old Testament law. So greet one another and have a great time of fellowship before our Resurrection Sunday service starts at 15 after.